Let's pray together. Father, it is our desire and our prayer that your word would come here at Snowden Baptist Church in power with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know, Lord, that your spirit and your word work in tandem. They work in an organically meshed sort of a way. And so we're asking your spirit to come and speak, be the voice here, uh, be the power here. I know that it is nothing about myself or anything that I have prepared that will bring power, but only your spirit. So we're praying for that. Come, Lord, and convict, challenge, encourage, steer, whatever it is your pleasure to do this morning. And may we listen well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A story out of Russia uh, last February gained international attention. In a town about 250 miles east of Moscow, a pack of dogs were discovered that had bright blue fur. People investigating this very odd occurrence have concluded that probably what happened is that these dogs had been hanging around an abandoned chemical plant in the area where there was a significant amount of copper sulfate. Somehow the dogs got into the copper sulfate, which turned their fur blue. But apparently, otherwise, the dogs are quite healthy. It's just that they look a little bit like Smurfs. But this is an example of how the environment that you are in can have a dramatic effect on you. The things that you are exposed to, in this case, copper sulfate, can become part of you. In the Bible, there is a strong connection between the presence of idols in one's life and the person coming to look like those idols. Uh, getting blue fur, so to speak. When you expose yourself to idols and to idolatry and to idol worship, you begin to take on the characteristics of your idol. And this happens, of course, to your ruin. For example, Israel built the golden calf and they worshipped the golden calf. They built a calf and not a tiger or a baboon, because the calf or the bull was the prominent idol in Egypt where they had just come from. They were copying Egypt. Calves and bulls and cows are known oftentimes to be stiff-necked against their owner. They, They can stubbornly stiffen their neck when they don't want to be pulled in a certain direction by their owner. Greg Beale has pointed out that in every instance, except for one in the Old Testament, when the phrase stiff-necked is used in connection with the people of Israel, it always describes those who worshipped the golden calf. The people who worshipped the calf idol became like that calf idol. They became like a calf, stiff-necked, recalcitrant, stubborn against their owner, God. 
Well, in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, there we have a description for a few verses of the deadness of idols and the uselessness of idols. And in the final verse of that passage, we have this very telling sentence. The psalmist says, those who make them, that is, those who make idols, become like them, so do all who trust in them. To quote the title of Greg Beale's book on idolatry, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. Similarly, over in Jeremiah chapter 2, we have a reflection there, a reflection back to the time when Jeroboam had set up two golden calves in northern Israel. God says there in Jeremiah 2.5 that in that incidence of idolatry, the people went after worthlessness and became worthless. They went after worthlessness, idols, and they became worthless. So in striking resemblance to the worthless things that they were worshiping, they themselves became worthless. That verse has real similarities with 2 Kings 17 verse 15, where Israel is described as going after false idols and becoming false themselves. We become what we worship. Well, this morning we are considering the words of Jesus to the third of the seven churches, which is the church in Pergamum, the danger of drifting away from the worship of the one true God into idolatry was a particularly acute danger in the city of Pergamum. There was a danger of having the fur turn blue, so to speak, because the idolatrous environment was a real danger in that city. And there were signs that the church was already starting to resemble the idolatrous environment that it was planted in. And so in his grace, Jesus our Lord comes with a sword, with a, so the sword of his word, to the church in Pergamum. He comes with a word of grace to us as well. Do you have ears to hear this morning? He comes with a word of grace. The thing about the city of Pergamum is that it was sort of like an idolatry buffet. An idolatry buffet. By the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, there had been a temple for the worship of Caesar in Pergamum for over a hundred years. And so the cult of the Roman emperor was a hugely influential thing in this city of Pergamum. And additionally, you had another temple and also a medical college devoted to the patron god of healing, Asclepios. Asclepios was represented by a serpent. And in fact, today, that, that little picture, you've probably seen it, that little picture of the serpent that is wrapped around the pole that you see in many, many medical contexts, 
That's a representation of Asclepios, patron god of healing. Well, there was a temple built to Asclepios in the city of Pergamum. But even further in Pergamum, there were also religious sites that were devoted to Athena and to Dionysius, not to mention a gigantic altar temple to Zeus, which stood on the hillside, up prominent on the hillside of Pergamum, with everyone living down below it in its shadow. Pergamum was a veritable buffet of idolatry. And here was Christ's church planted in its midst. Do you hear any contemporary relevance there? The church planted in the midst of an idolatry buffet. Well, Grant Osborne, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, reminds us that the Christians in Pergamum, they didn't have an easy time. They were called atheists by the Romans. Why atheists? Well, because the Christians rejected the Roman gods, and so the Romans labeled them as atheists. And the Christians were also labeled by the Romans as haters of the human race. Haters of the human race. Because the Christians refused to show loyalty to the emperor in the way that the Romans thought was appropriate. So Jesus comes here and he addresses his beleaguered church in Pergamum. He says, beginning in Revelation 2.12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has what? The sharp, two-edged sword. Pergamum was one of only a few cities in the Roman Empire that had been granted the right to administer capital punishment. And capital punishment was often symbolized by a sword. Jesus is saying here that the one with the true sword, the true combat sword, the one with the true power was himself and not any Roman official. Caesar or otherwise. The true judge who wields the sword of judgment and the sword of his word, friends, is Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 13 and he begins to rehearse now the picture, the picture. There's always a picture of the church. Here's the picture of the church in Pergamum. He begins with yet another statement about how he knows what's going on in his church. We've seen this many times where he says, I know. Here he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's where you live, church. See, Jesus knows all about the living arrangements of his church. They are planted in the midst of the place where Satan's throne is. Again, The patron god of healing with his own temple in this town was Asclepios, the serpent. And in and around the temple to Zeus that was up on the hill were several sculptures on which were representations of serpents. All this idolatry with all these serpent images, all this darkly religious 
presence and strong political presence within this town, all of it wielding a power in the city, it all amounted to what Jesus calls here Satan's throne. How does the church of Jesus Christ confess Jesus and witness to him in the midst of such a threatening environment? Well, the church in Pergamum, they were actually doing a pretty good job at this. Let's keep reading here. Jesus says in verse 13, by the way, verse 13 is very long. That's why the print is a little uh, smaller there. He says in verse 13, church, you're there in Pergamum. You're planted in the midst of Satan's hometown, in essence. And yet, you hold fast my name. That is, Church of Jesus Christ, even though you are bombarded daily with the pressures and the ideas that are running contrary to the gospel, you hold fast my name. You are behaving in a way that brings glory to my name, says Jesus. You are spreading the news of my reputation right there in the midst of Satan's throne. You hold fast my name. Now, pause with me here just for a moment to to notice this, that so far in our study of these seven churches, Jesus has shown a concern for his name twice in chapter 2, verse 3, and now in chapter 2, verse 13, and he's going to do that again twice before he's finished talking to these seven churches. So it raises the question of our concern for his name, our concern for his reputation and his glory. If Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, if he shows such concern for his name, his church should most definitely share that same concern, a concern that his reputation be made great in your workplace that his reputation be made great in your home, that his reputation be made great within your family relationships, everywhere you go, and that his glory and his, the good news of the gospel would spread through the witness of the church. He continues there in verse 13 by saying, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, this person named Antipas obviously had been a member of the church there in Pergamum, and for his faithful witness to Jesus Christ, Antipas had been put to death right there in this city. Now, this would have been, consider, put put yourself in the shoes of the Church of Pergamum, this would have been a traumatizing, fearful thing, right, for the saints in the church. This, This sort of thing could have led to defections from the faith for reasons of safety. Could have gone that way, but Jesus commends these believers here for not denying him even in the midst of such a terrible situation. 
we get the distinct impression after we're done reading verse 13 that the church in Pergamum, listen, they were doing well in terms of witness. They were doing well in terms of holding to the confession of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of real persecution there in the church, in the midst of Satan's throne. And in this way, in this way of their prominent witness, they were the opposite of the church in Ephesus, right? We remember Ephesus. They were criticized by the Lord for their lack of witness. But in Pergamum, witness was not the problem. They were doing well at it. The problem in Pergamum now follows in verse 14 and verse 15. Jesus says, here's the problem. But I have a few things against you. Keep in mind, this is the head of the church talking to his church. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The problem that Jesus identifies in these verses centers around teaching. The problem in this church centered around what was being taught inside the church. Again, this is the opposite problem that the church in Ephesus had, right? We remember that the church of Ephesus was doing everything right in terms of maintaining true teaching and proper doctrine. Here at Pergamum, this was not the case. And the head of the church, Jesus Christ, criticizes them for it. Now, as we deepen into these two verses, the first thing for us to notice is that there are two influencers, two influencers who get mentioned here. The first influencer mentioned here is Balaam. Who is Balaam? Well, he lived centuries prior to the situation in Pergamum. The story of Balaam can be found in the Old Testament book of Numbers. If you have your Bible, you can certainly turn there. Part of Balaam's story, part of his story, is that he concocted a scheme to bring ruin to Israel by doing what? By sending into their midst Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men in a sexual way which would then draw those Israelite men into Moabite idolatry. In our verse, Jesus says that there were some in the church of Pergamum who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. Meaning what? Meaning that there were people who were okay with sexual immorality in the church, and they were okay with the church sliding toward and into idolatry. And both of these things, sexual immorality and idolatry, both of these things, we have to remember, were alive and well in the city of Pergamum, outside the doors of the church. 
the copper sulfate that turns you blue was alive and well in the city of Pergamum, and now it had been seeping into the church. The church was beginning to resemble the world or the environment in which it was planted. The values of the surrounding culture were being now accepted inside the church. Now, notice in verse 15, as we look at this, notice the first two words in verse 15, those words, so also. Those words, so also, they tie what is about to be said in verse 15 back to verse 14, right? It's a connector. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are the second influencer along with Balaam that is in these verses. So Jesus is saying this to his church. Just as you have those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, which is all about sexual immorality and idolatry, so also you have those who hold to the Nicolaitan teaching, and probably, friends, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans was very much the same. The focus of both was to lead the church into sexual deviance, the sexual deviance of the surrounding culture, and into the worship of idols. And all of it was happening here in the city where Satan's throne was. Now, you know, friends, it is good for us as a church to be inclusive, at least at one level. We are to welcome people of all ethnicities, nations, young and old, rich and poor, etc. But as Daryl Johnson has put it so well, listen to what he says, quote, the church is not to be inclusive of all ideas, of all presuppositions, of all social and spiritual persuasions. All of us are welcome, he says, but all of us, all of us are then called by the head of the church to repent, to change our minds, to submit our thinking to the thinking of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, there was a gatekeeping problem in the church of Pergamum. The Balaam teachers and the Nicolaitans were being given far too much license far too much space inside the church. Their teaching and their ideas were being allowed to spread without the appropriate checks and balances. And the Lord of the church in Pergamum now addresses this. And he issues the prescription in verse 16. He issues a command to the church. Here's the prescription. Jesus says, therefore, what? Repent. That's the prescription. Church, you must do a radical U-turn, he says. 180 degrees, start right now, heading in the opposite direction of where you've been headed. Change your minds about how much leeway you are giving the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. Stop the cancer 
that is growing in the church. Root out these evil influencers from your midst and turn from their teaching. If not, says the Lord of the church, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what's very interesting here in verse 16, especially with this word sword, is the clear connection back again to the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, we remember the famous story. God was angry with Balaam as Balaam was proceeding down the road on his donkey, you know, Balaam's famous donkey. And Balaam is on his way there to do what? To go curse Israel, curse the people of God. Twice in that story, twice we are told that an angel of the Lord stood in the way of Balaam there on the road and the angel had a sword drawn. And then we have the story of Balaam's failed attempts to curse Israel. And in Numbers 25, we have the story of the Moabite women seducing the men of Israel and influencing them toward idolatry. And that was a plan, friends, a plan that had been dreamed up and had been advised by Balaam. And we find that out in Numbers 31, verse 16. That was Balaam's plan. Well, on the road with his donkey then, Balaam had been warned by an angel holding the sword. And in the end, how did Balaam meet his end? By the sword. Numbers 31.8 tells us that Balaam was put to death with the sword. Listen. The sword was the execution instrument for the person who had, had enticed the people of God toward idolatry at Baal Peor. Jesus says in verse 16 of our passage that he will use a sword, the sword of his mouth, to war against to slay those who would lead his church into idolatry. Friends, we have to know this about our Lord. He will not wink as this stuff happens in his church. He will not turn a blind eye. He loves his church far too much for that to happen. Thank God then with me for the warrior son of God and his zealous love for his church. Amen? Now, a little bit more biblical theology here. Um, it's worth noting that in Hosea 9, verse 10, there what's happening is the prophet Hosea is reflecting back on Balaam. He's reflecting back on the incident at Baal Peor of Numbers 25 when Balaam had devised his plan to lead Israel into idolatry. And Hosea says there, listen to what he says as he reflects back on that incident. They came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, listen, and became detestable like the thing they loved. Did you hear that description? 
Notice that description of what idolatry does to you. When you worship something other than God, when your love and your trust is directed to something other than God, you become detestable like the thing you love. You become what you worship. You get blue fur, so to speak. You begin to resemble whatever the wicked thing is that you are exposing yourself to and loving. And Jesus is so zealous, notice, so zealous to protect us from that, that he will act like a new and better Phineas. He will come to make war against idolatry in his church, and it probably won't be altogether pretty. Hence the call before that happens to repent, turn from your idolatry. Now, friends, one of the things that Scripture makes abundantly clear about idols is that they cannot hear. So back to Psalm 115. As the psalmist there is describing idols, he says in verse 6 of Psalm 115 that idols have ears but do not hear. It's characteristic of idols. They, maybe they have representations of ears, but they can't hear. And we could also add Deuteronomy 4.28 that mentions gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear. Idols have no ability to hear. They are altogether deaf. And once again, friend, if you are an idolater, if you are a person, person who worships deaf idols, you too will not be able to hear with your spiritual ears. Because, to use Greg Beale's phrase again, you become what you worship. You take on the characteristics of the idol that you worship, you become spiritually deaf. And so in our last verse today, in Revelation 2.17, Jesus wonders if we can hear. Can we hear? Are you a person that can hear? Those who worship Jesus exclusively and have his spirit living on the inside of them and who actively are warring against idolatry every day, those people can hear. But those who are headlong into worshiping, pursuing some idol, whether that idol is sex, pornography, money, power, material stuff, whatever it is, if you're headlong into worshiping idols so that your attention and your love and your affection has been taken off Jesus Christ, you will be hard of hearing spiritually. And so my friend, can you hear? He who has an ear let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches, and then the promise to the one who conquers. To the one, in this case, who conquers what? Who conquers the sin of tolerating the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Balaamites in the church. To the person who tolerates that and roots this out and is proactively working with the people of God to rid the church of this, I, says Jesus, will give some of the hidden manna. Israel, the people of God, were to be sustained, how, on their wilderness journey? With manna, right? The manna from heaven. We, as the conquering church of Jesus Christ, are sustained on our journey. How how many of you know you're on a wilderness journey? On our journey toward the new heavens and the new earth, we are sustained with the manna from heaven, Jesus, the bread of life. And here he promises his life-nourishing presence for the journey to the one who conquers. And, promises Jesus, he says, I will give him, I will give the one who conquers, listen, a white stone. Interesting. A white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there have been several interpretations suggested for the white stone in this verse. I think the interpretation that makes the most sense is this. There was an ancient Roman custom in friendship, when you're friends with somebody, where when you're with your friend and you were about to part from one another, you would take a white stone and you would break it into two pieces. Each of the friends would take half of the broken stone and they would inscribe their name on their half and then the two friends would exchange halves of the stone and the idea was that the friendship was going to last as long as the stone did. And then you'd part ways. To the one who conquers, Jesus will give his half of the white stone to us in friendship. But what's going to be inscribed on that stone? Listen, on the stone will be written what? A new name. The stone that he gives us on that stone will be written a new name. So just as Jesus Christ gave Simon a new name, do you remember what it was? Peter. So Jesus in his authority and in his intimate friendship with his conquering saints, he's going to give each of us new names. What will your new name be? I can't wait to figure out what that's going to be. So friends, what a passage this is. As we work now toward a close, what have we seen here? What, what have we heard? Let's just do a little bit of review here. We have heard the authoritative Jesus Christ with his two-edged sword come and first of all, praise the church in Pergamum for its witness. He praises the church for its steadfast promotion of the reputation of its Lord, even in the midst of its persecution and pressure that it faced. But we've also heard Jesus diagnose the problem in Pergamum. The problem was a gatekeeping problem. A gatekeeping problem. They had allowed influence from the surrounding culture 
to come into the church unchecked. Certain teachers had brought in the copper sulfate, so to speak, and now people were being influenced toward the sexual immorality, toward the idolatry of the surrounding culture. And the prescription that Jesus gives for the problem, again, is repent. If not, he will make war on the church with the sword of his mouth. He calls the church to hear, repent, hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying. Idolaters won't hear, but born-again worshipers of Jesus Christ will hear, and they will heed this command. And to the one who hears and heeds and conquers, Jesus promises manna. He promises the white stone of friendship with our new name inscribed upon it. So what is the general call to the church in this passage as we wrap this up? The general call is for us, listen, we are the church. We are individuals in a church, but together corporately we are the church. And the call is for us to think very carefully about our interaction with the surrounding culture. The call to the church is not to withdraw from the surrounding culture. We must still proactively engage with the culture, make efforts to witness to the culture and in the culture, to influence the culture where we can with the values of the kingdom. Absolutely. But we must never, listen, we must never, friends, despite the tidal wave in our culture today that is buffeting us every day, we must never as his church embrace what a godless culture is promoting. We must guard against letting the copper sulfate come into the church. We must not compromise. We must not adopt values that are in conflict with our king and with his kingdom. In the power of the Holy Spirit of God and with the mind of Christ that he supplies, we must discern and we must gatekeep and we must keep ourselves from idols, as the Apostle John says right at the tail end of 1 John. God gives us his love, doesn't he? God gives us his faithfulness. God gives us his protection. God gives us his provision. And God gives us his forgiveness and his grace and his fatherly care. He gives us himself. And so why would we ever entertain other lovers other no-account gods. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit wielding your word. We thank you that these letters to the churches in Revelation are still speaking to the church in 2021 planted across the globe. We thank you, Lord, that you, are, you continue to speak. May we have ears to hear and hear, and in hearing, obey and be doers of this word. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.